We are in Mark chapter 10. So we're going to read this morning from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. Uh, to orient you a little bit to where we are in Mark, uh, Jesus is on the road going to Jerusalem. That's actually significant in this uh, part of the story. He is headed beelining uh, to Jerusalem. It won't be long before the triumphal entry. It won't be long before the conflict that he has with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. It won't be long uh, before the cross. And so again, he is talking to his disciples on this journey about what awaits both him and them. And that's significant uh, for what we're going to learn from this passage. So read with me uh, from Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. Um, 32, I'll read to 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was about to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who were considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. This is your word, O oh God, and it is true. We pray that we would sit now, this morning, in submission to it. That you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to be sharpened and cut, to be healed by the scalpel of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When's the last time you've thought about Arnold Schwarzenegger? Has it, has it been a while? Uh, it, I actually read an article about Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, recently, which is the only reason why I was thinking about him. And Did you know that before Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor of California, and he was, before Arnold Schwarzenegger was the Terminator, before Arnold Schwarzenegger was married to a Kennedy, 
Arnold Schwarzenegger was the most dominant bodybuilder on the planet. Now, I don't really know what this means, but my article told me that in his bodybuilding career, Schwarzenegger won an unprecedented five Mr. Universe titles and six Mr. Olympia titles. I don't know what those are, but it could be bodybuilding or cornhole. If you're a world champion 11 times, it's impressive. I I, I say this because this article was mainly about not that. It was mainly about Schwarzenegger's success as an actor and as a politician. And the thesis that the author was making in this article was that the reason that Schwarzenegger succeeded in these uh, two disparate roles out of the bodybuilding career, both acting and politics, was because he brought to those things the same tenacious spirit that he brought to his bodybuilding that he kept on going, that he kept on plowing where other people would quit long before he would, and therefore he was successful. So to prove his point, the author offered this quotation from Arnold Schwarzenegger. He said this, That's what most people lack, having the guts to go on and just say they'll go through the pain no matter what happens. I have no fear of fainting. I do squats until I fall over and pass out. So what? It's not going to kill me. I wake up five minutes later and I'm okay. A lot of other athletes are afraid of this, so they don't pass out. They don't go on. I read that quote and I thought to myself, well, that settles it. I'll never be the five-time Mr. Olympia or Mr. Universe because I don't want to do squats until I pass out. I feel like that's probably pretty dangerous. But you know what? Every once in a while after I work out, I will think to myself, you know what would be awesome? This really would be awesome. What would be awesome is if you could work out one time and have all of the benefits of that one workout apply to you forever. Have you ever thought about that? You know, wouldn't that be super cool that you could just do that, you know, one time? And and, and you know what that mindset represents? It really represents this mindset of glory without sacrifice. Glory without sacrifice is a particularly human way uh, of interacting with the world because a lot of people ask these kinds of questions. How can I get strong without working out? How can I lose weight without eating well? How can I get wealthy without working hard and saving money? How can I make good grades without studying? How can I make the team without practicing? How can I get glory without sacrifice? A lot of us in this room have lived long enough to know that basically you can't. But that dream is what keeps the Powerball going up to $500 million all the time. It's what keeps all of the magazines on the shelves that you see when you're checking out at HEB that promise you a painless path to perfection. There is something about this dream of glory without suffering, without sacrifice, that is deeply embedded in the hearts of human beings. Now, the Gospel of Mark knows a lot about this because here in Mark 10, we come, and this is fascinating actually, we come to the third time that Jesus has explicitly told his disciples that he is going to go to Jerusalem to die. And every single time he has done this, you can go back and look, 
chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. Every single time Jesus has done this, uh, the very next scene is one of the disciples expressing misunderstanding and misapprehension of what he's talking about. In chapter 8, Jesus predicts his death. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. And he reminds Jesus that the Messiah is not supposed to die. This is not what the Messiah actually does. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Because only Satan would be one standing in the way of Jesus going to Jerusalem and to the cross. And Peter is serving that purpose in that role at that time. Chapter 9. Again, Jesus tells his disciples for a second time that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He is going to die at the hands of men. And then immediately after that, an argument breaks out among all 12 disciples about whom among them is the greatest. And here we are, the last time, chapter 10. Immediately after Jesus tells his disciples in great detail that he's going to die, including the fact that it is going to take place in Jerusalem while they are on the road going to Jerusalem, right then, James and John sneak Jesus away and ask if, hey Jesus, when we get to Jerusalem and you take over the city, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand when you enter into your glory? They still believe, you see, that Jesus is going into Jerusalem to establish an earthly kingdom of power and authority, and they want to sit next to Jesus and exercise authority with him. And so Jesus, who by the way, and this is convicting to me, exercises incredible patience with his disciples. He's so patient. He's so merciful. He's so gracious. He reminds us of how really patient he is with all of us as we misunderstand and misapprehend and, and, don't, and, and fail in our walks with him. But Jesus, in his patience, but in his pointedness, asks a rhetorical question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism? I, am going, I can't get my prepositions right. With which I am baptized, right? And the disciples respond because he's talking to all of them now. Yes, we can do that. But they can't. And neither can we. So he calls all the disciples over to him and he teaches them again concluding with these words, and these are the words that we're going to focus on. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A very important verse in the Gospel of Mark. I want us to unpack that verse because what we see in this verse is Jesus revealing for the first time not just the fact of his death, but also the purpose of his death. And we see that Jesus is a willing sacrifice, that Jesus is a humble sacrifice, and that Jesus is a purposeful sacrifice. So first, in Mark 10, 45, we see Jesus is a willing sacrifice. If you're ever in academic circles where people talk about the New Testament, you will often hear it stated as, as fact, uh, something that is not actually fact, that in the three synoptic gospels, and the three synoptic gospels are, are the synopses of his life, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's an argument that in the three synoptic gospels, Jesus never explicitly claims to be God. He never makes a claim of deity. Basically, they say that uh, at some point, a couple hundred years, a few hundred years after that, 
They needed Jesus to be God so that the power of the church could be consolidated. And so people went back and put these words of deity in the mouth of Jesus. But it isn't true and, and because even without these explicit claims of Jesus, which I believe Jesus did actually make, he implicitly claims to be God all the time in the Synoptic Gospels. And this is one of them. In verse 45, there is a very important short word that cannot be missed. And that word is this, came, C-A-M-E. Jesus came. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, this word came means that before Jesus was born in the stable, of the Virgin Mary, he was somewhere else. He was somewhere else. And where he was was at his rightful place as the eternal third person of the Trinity who came to us, a willing sacrifice who saw the plight of his creatures here on earth, understood our slavery to sin and death, and willingly came. One of the places this willing sacrifice of Jesus is portrayed and illustrated most poignantly it's in the wonderful C.S. Lewis book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if you're stuck in, you know, uh, if you're bored to death right now, you know, in whatever it is that you're doing, and you haven't visited those books for the first time or revisited them, that would be a worthwhile endeavor uh, during this time. You won't be sorry. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund Pevensey, who is one of the Pevensey children, uh, he promises to deliver his siblings over to the white witch because she has bribed him with Turkish delight. Now, I looked up the ingredients of Turkish delight, which I've never had. And, and when I looked up the ingredients of Turkish delight, none of that was appealing to me. I'm looking at Edmund, I'm like, seriously? There's coconut in there. I mean, for no, for that, you're going to give up your, your brothers and your sisters? No. But he likes Turkish delight, and, and he does. Uh, promise that he will deliver his siblings over to the white witch. Now what he misses in this deal is what happens to him if he doesn't deliver his siblings over to the white witch. Because if he doesn't deliver them over to the white witch, Edmund himself is responsible for death, his own death. He will be sacrificed if he doesn't make good on his promise. If he fails uh, to deliver on his promise, he will be killed by the white witch. And that is where Aslan, the great and powerful lion, enters the story. After conferring with the white witch, which, in which she walks away incredibly happy, he walks into his tent to sleep, a restless sleep overnight. And early in the morning before anybody is awake, Aslan leaves his tent and he begins to walk alone somewhere, except that two people follow him, Susan and Lucy. Uh, the Pevensey girls follow Aslan and they follow him to the rock, the stone of sacrifice, the great stone. Why is he going there? Well, he's going there to die. On that stone, the white witch puts Aslan to death. And she believes that she has won this incredible victory. She believes that now all of Narnia will be hers. And she walks away to fight a, a brief war uh, that she believes will be brief in glee. But when she does... Aslan comes back to life. And appearing to Susan and Lucy, who had followed him on this journey, Aslan explains what had just happened. And this is what he says. If the witch understood the true meaning of sacrifice, 
she might have interpreted the deep magic differently. For when a willing victim who has committed no treachery dies in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack and even death itself will turn backwards. You see that? That's the Son of Man who came to us, a willing victim who has committed no treachery. The Son of Man, Jesus, is a willing sacrifice. He's also a humble sacrifice. Jesus came. He came from his throne in heaven where the angels and the archangels and all the company of heaven never ceased to worship him around his throne. Think about that. But in what posture did he come to this earth? Well, let's keep going in verse 25. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Imagine that for just a moment. The King of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who has been eternally and continuously worshipped, came to earth in human flesh. The one who created all things became dependent on his very creatures for his human survival. This is humility. And this is the crux of Jesus' answer to James and John when they were asking him if they could sit at his left hand or sit at his right hand. You see, it was normative in that culture, Jesus tells them in verse 40, for those in positions of authority to lord it over those who were under them, to lord it over the people. But then he says this to all of the disciples, and so by extension to the disciples that follow those 12, you and me, if we are followers of Jesus. He says this, not so with you. Not so with you. The strong become weak so that the weak may become strong. That is the way of life in the kingdom of God and that is the way of life that is so challenging to us in this world today. But take comfort because we are not unique in that. Pride is the father of all sin. The first sin was not actually the action of Adam and Eve eating from the fruit of the tree that God commanded them not to eat. The first sin was actually the pride that took root in their hearts that convinced them that they could be their own gods. They could rule their own lives. And that is a desire that has been lodged in every single human heart ever since that point. And if you're a Christian hearing this this morning, this pursuit of true gospel humility may be the thing that brings you into the most conflict with the world because it is not valued. It is not valued in the world. It is certainly not valued in our culture here in Houston. Because humility, as Jesus explains it in this passage, doesn't ask the question, how can I use my gifts and my talents and my abilities and my resources to exalt myself? Gospel humility asks, how can I use the gifts, talents, abilities, and resources that God has given to me to exalt others? You see, if you have influence over other people in your place of work, The question is, are you lording that authority over them? Or are you doing everything that you can possibly do to help those who work for you thrive and flourish and grow? 
If you have ample financial resources in this world, are you deploying them strategically to grow the kingdom of God and promote the well-being of other people? Or are you simply using them to build your own kingdom on this earth? Have you come to a place in your life where you think that you have essentially become completely established in your patterns of thought? Or is there a piece of humility, a large piece of humility in your heart and your mind that continuously submits you and continuously opens you up to the scalpel of God's word where you allow yourself to be cut on by the Holy Spirit, to repent to others, to repent to God, to admit that you are wrong, to change your mind, biblically speaking. That's humility. Established in the person and work of the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve. And finally, this brings us to the fact that Jesus is a purposeful sacrifice. The Son of Man came. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This last part of verse 45, when Jesus spoke it to his disciples and to us, this is the part that we cannot do. This is the place where we cannot mimic Jesus. No one can do this. Jesus calls those who follow him to learn from the fact that he came. We call this incarnational ministry. We talk about this at Christ the King in terms of not building a fortress around the church and building up walls so that the world can't get in. We talk about it about leaving these walls and going out and going to the places where people are, being where they are, incarnational as Jesus came to us. But we cannot give our lives as a ransom for many. Only Jesus can do that. The word for ransom in the original language is the word lutron. It was a word that was most used at that time to signify a person purchasing a slave at the price of that slave's worth and then freeing the slave. The way that this would work in the first century was that an owner of a slave would calculate the value of that slave for the entirety of their service. So for the entirety of the service, past, present, and future of this slave was X, someone would give them a lutron, a ransom. They would pay that price, and then when they had purchased that slave, they would slit that slave free. Now here's the question. What is the price of ransom from your slavery, from my slavery? We as human beings are not slaves to a human master, but the Apostle Paul is very clear that in our natural state, apart from the quickening work of the Holy Spirit, we are all slaves, we are all slaves to sin. For all have sinned, the Apostle Paul says, and fall short of the glory of God. So what is the lutron? What is the payment? What is the ransom price for your slavery to sin, for my slavery to sin? Well, Paul answers this as well in Romans chapter 6. The wages of sin is death. The price to be paid for sin is death. Death is the price of ransom for sinners, and we are all sinners. That's what Jesus does, you see. Jesus pays that 
Luthron, that ransom where you and I deserve death because of our sins, Jesus pays it, a purposeful sacrifice. He goes to a death on a cross so that you and I do not suffer that death. Now, some may argue that this concept of sacrificial death is all very kind of superstitious and pagan. You know, it's kind of like, that just kind of makes God a God that has to be appeased. But, you know, it's not that at all. And it's really understandable, in fact. The concept of, of, of ransom is a concept that plays out all over the place in our normal human interactions. Think about parenting for a second. All right, if you're a parent, you know this to be true. Because when you have children and you want to be a, a generally good parent, right, a, a, a good parent, what are you doing? Well, what you're doing is you are willingly humbling yourself and you are removing massive amounts of freedom for your life for the next 20 plus years, right? You're doing things that you don't really want to do. You're changing diapers. You're talking baby talk when you're perfectly comfortable having other conversations. You're reading books that you already have memorized, but you're faking it. You're driving carpool. You're watching sports that you don't like. And you're listening to violin concerts that aren't very good. You're staying up late, waiting for teenagers to come home, and you're suffering. You're having hard conversations when you are exhausted and you don't really feel like it. What are you doing? You're sacrificing, right? You're sacrificing for your children. You are paying a price. You're bearing a price in your own life for their own good. Why? Because if you don't pay that sacrifice for the next 20 years, somebody's going to pay it. You know who's going to pay it? Your kids are going to pay it. That's who. You've seen this. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life. What happens to children whose parents refuse to make sacrifices for them? Maybe a man serially impregnates women and just runs off, never to be seen again. Or on the other side of the socioeconomic perspective, maybe a husband and wife simply can't be bothered to give up all of their freedom to do whatever they want to do, to go wherever they want to go, to work however much they want to work all the time. What happens? Well, the children pay the price. They pay the wages. They grow physically, but they struggle emotionally. They may remain perpetual adolescents, paying that price well into their adulthood, a price that should have been paid for them by their parents. Somebody's got to pay the price. Somebody has to pay the ransom. In this case, either it's going to be the parents or it's going to be the children. Now, sin against God is a much worse and bigger problem than this. It is a cosmic problem. It requires a cosmic solution. Jesus' willing, humble, purposeful sacrifice on the cross is the solution. And it's the only possible solution. It's the only possible solution for the wages of sin that is death. And that's the question that I want to leave you with this morning. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. Are you counted in that number? By grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he invites you. He does. He invites you. Come to him. Be transformed by him. And give yourself to his redemptive mission. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you did not stay in heaven, but that you 
came. You came to be a sacrifice for our sins that in you we might have life. Father, for those who are hearing these words and have not yet embraced that sacrifice uh, for their own lives, may it be so now. Would you enter in, Lord Jesus? Would you enter in and transform hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh? And for those who have come to trust in you, would you make us willing followers who come to this world not to be served, but to serve as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.